0: Uh, here's a question to get things uh, started off. i want you to turn to the person next to you and ask them uh, what their favorite book in the Bible is. Now, if you haven't got a favorite book or you're not so familiar with this, that's absolutely fine. Say, well, I'm just not sure, or oh, there are so many I can't choose. Uh, but if you've got a favorite book in the Bible, uh, share it with the person next to you. If there isn't anyone next to you, then turn around or, or find someone. Just quickly go. What's your favorite book in the Bible? Okay, that's probably long enough. It was only one book, not lots and lots. Um, okay, shove hands on this. Um, who plumped for the Psalms? Any Psalms lovers? Yeah, a few of you. Um, what about one of the Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Any? any okay. And it, about uh, one of the letters of Paul in the New Testament, and uh, any of the letters. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, other books. Shout them out if I haven't covered it. Hebrews. Ah, I'm liking Hebrews. Yes, great. And first part of Daniel. Yeah. What what happens in the second part? (laughs) Okay, okay. That's very precise. Peter, obviously. Well, yes. uh, Your your namesake. Uh, Any others? Ecclesiastes. Oh, look at you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. One other. Ruth, great book. Well, I'm glad I asked. Now, uh, here's the thing. If you were to ask Christians in other parts of the world, primarily in persecuted contexts, many of them would turn right around and say that, Uh, Like Peter here, 1 Peter is the most important book in the whole Bible for them because 1 Peter, uh, as I'm sure you could come and tell us, has this assumption running all the way through it that followers of Jesus are like this cultural minority without religious protection or freedom, and they have to live out their faith in a world that is pretty hostile to them. Really, from beginning to end, Peter's primary focus is to help believers to live in that kind of a context. And so, what I thought was, it might be a bit of a cunning plan between now and the end of the year to work through this book of 1 Peter because, well, another thing is about to say, over the years, we've had a fair bit of freedom to practice our faith here in the UK. The more secular our nation becomes, the more people demand that we keep our faith private, and the more we're left asking, how on earth do we live as faithful followers of Christ in a context like that? And so, what we're going to do over the next few months is we're going to try and glean as much wisdom as we can from Peter and how he equipped those early Christians to navigate that kind of a cultural context. This morning, going to keep it very simple, we're only going to look at the first two verses of chapter 1. Uh, And as a special bonus, we're also going to dip into chapter 2 and look at a couple of verses from there as well. Let's pick it up though in chapter 1 verse 1. This is what Peter writes. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. And then into chapter 2, verse 11, Peter continues, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Now, just say so you know where we're heading with all of this, we're going to end up, I promise, looking at what these verses tell us about how we're to live. That's where we're going to end up. But not before, first of all, unpacking what these verses reveal about who we really are. Because I think it's crucial to grasp that what we do very much flows out of an understanding of who we are. If you like right behavior... Flows from an understanding of our identity. So, first things first, who are we? Well, straight away we see in verse 1 and then later on in chapter 2, verse 11, that we are temporary residents and foreigners. Straight away in verse 1, we see that this letter is written to people who have been forced out of Rome and are now living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They've literally been pushed out of their homes, and have ended up scattered right around all these different foreign cities where they don't truly belong. Now, let's not brush over that. Let's try to imagine the seriousness of that for those people, try to imagine what it meant for them. Earlier on this year, Helen and I had the wonderful privilege of visiting our team out in Beirut. And really, by far the most moving experience while we were there was sitting down and spending an evening with a couple of Syrian refugees who had come to faith in Jesus. They had footage on their phone of the derelict remains of what used to be their family home in Syria. Honestly, they'd lost everything. Family, uh, in fact, their family, because they have come to face, now want to murder them, and there's a chance they might need to return to Syria. If they return to Syria, their family will be gunning for them. They lost their family, friends, their livelihood, possessions, and their rights. You see, in Beirut, they weren't officially allowed to work, They couldn't access health care, but they lived with the constant uncertainty of not knowing how long it would be before they were forced to move on. And to compound matters, they were viewed with suspicion and resentment, even hatred by the locals. That's what it's like to be a temporary resident, to be a foreigner pushed out from your home and forced to live in another nation. I want us to hold all of that in our minds as we reread what Peter says in chapter 2 verse 11. He says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Peter here is making the, the pretty profound point that what is true of them in a literal sense is also true of them spiritually. He's saying that every single one of us who is a follower of Jesus should from now on think of ourselves as a refugee, as a foreigner, as a temporary resident, as someone in exile. You see, as Paul explains uh, over in Philippians 3 verse 20, ultimately, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our saviour. And so, I think we are to live with this constant sense of tension. We're we're, we're to live with this tension of Birmingham being our home, but all the time realising it is not our true home, but on the one hand, we're to put down roots and live as the very best citizens we can here in Birmingham. Uh, there's a passage, we refer to it often, famous passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29. It gives us, I think, a perfect example of what this looks like in practice. If you remember, God speaks through Jeremiah to the Israelites who were living in exile in Babylon. What did he say to them? He says, settle down, build houses, plant vineyards, plant vineyards raise your families. But most of all, he says, pray and work for the full flourishing, the prospering of that city. In other words, love the city in which you are an exile. But all the time, we're never to forget that we are exiles. We don't belong here anymore and we're not meant to Ultimately, we are citizens of another city, a different city, the city to come. Because of our identification with Christ, it's as though now we are strangers in this world. For starters, we we have very different perspectives to the people around us, don't we? we? We know there is so much more to life just than this. And so we travel light because we know we're just passing through. And all the time, our values are shaped not by the culture around us, but by our true home, which means that we'll constantly be misunderstood and treated with suspicion and even hated. If you remember, Jesus himself had taught Peter in John 15, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Listen, if we are serious about faithfully following Christ, people just won't get us Most people uh, will, will think we're just a bit odd or strange. Others will hate us and actively oppose us. And because we think differently, we'll be seen as a nuisance, as people more and more to be silenced. That's just the way it is. This is the reality that Christians have always lived with, and this is certainly the reality for us today. I mean, around the world right now, it's reported that a Christian is killed for following Jesus every six minutes. Every six minutes. The first six months of last year alone, 6,000 Christians were killed in Nigeria. 50,000 were displaced. Of the 100,000 Christians in North Korea, I mean, again, 100,000 Christians in North Korea is amazing, but of those 100,000, just under a third of them, are currently being held in concentration camps. And it's estimated that currently 214 church properties are destroyed in Asia every month. Now look, some parts of the New Testament are specifically addressed to believers in those sorts of situations. There are swathes of the New Testament that are written to provide comfort to believers in those kinds of of situations. But there's actually not a whole lot of evidence in 1 Peter that the Christians Peter was writing to were experiencing martyrdom or any kind of state-sponsored persecution at that point. Now, of course, it would come. (laughs) Not long after this letter was written, it would come. But at the time Peter wrote this letter, it was more like the sporadic mistreatment and the ridicule and the abuse that we suffer here in the UK. And to people like us, Peter believed it was crucial to think in terms of being temporary residents or foreigners, to to come to terms in day-to-day life with being exiles, to acknowledge we just do not belong in this world. So that's the first thing. Second thing I want you to see here in terms of our identity, Peter also addresses us as God's chosen people, God's chosen people. Now, every people group has certain characteristics, don't they? Every people group has things that they are known for, things they specifically take pride in. Uh, In fact, this could be slightly risky uh, and don't want to play to any kind of uh, dodgy stereotypes or anything. But let's put this to the test. Uh, Do we have any northerners in the room? Okay, well, uh, what are you known for? What are some of the things that northerners are particularly proud of? Don't be shy. Shout them out. You're not known for your nervousness or backward, being backwards and coming forward. What, what what are Northerners? What what about people from Liverpool? What, what what are you renowned for? Straight talking, yeah. Being friendly, much more, much more friendly than the Southerners. I mean, let, let's not turn this into a fight. Uh, uh, w- w- one more thing uh, about Northerners mushy peas uh well, I've got that that is by far the best thing what what about anyone here from Scotland really far north uh, okay what what are the what are the Scots really proud of haggis that, yeah yeah so their food Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, what, what about born and bred Brummies? Do we have any Brummies in the room? Uh, okay, what, 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 what are we proud of or what are we known for? Being normal. We're the normal ones. Uh, anything else? accents. yeah, the way we speak. Yeah, putting up with others and being... Yeah, okay. Now, uh, every people group has its own distinctives. And what Peter's going to show us in this letter is that if we're part of God's chosen people, then there are certain things that we are to be known for. How we live, what we do with our money, how we respond to people who wrong us, that the joy we have in pain... Uh, is going to explain all of that uh, in the chapters to come, but there's actually something way more foundational that I want us to say about this today. If we grasp what it means to be part of God's chosen people, then we are going to be the most assured, the most confident, the most secure people in the world. Let me illustrate why from one of my favourite Old Testament passages. Notice that Uh, No one chose Deuteronomy as their favorite book in the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, God explains to Israel why he's chosen them. This is what he says in verse 6. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. Why? Because they're so strong, uh, so good looking, uh, because of their food, uh, because they were so talented Well, let's read on. Verse 7, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you're more numerous than other nations, for you are the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and he was keeping the oaths he had sworn to your ancestors. In other words, it had nothing to do with their strengths or how impressive they were, they were the most weak, the most feeble people on the planet. And I suggest it's the same for us. What is it about us that caused God to choose us? God's like, really? There's nothing about you that particularly attracted me. You know, just by way of an aside, I don't think that would work with Helen, my wife. Imagine if she asked me why I fell in love with her in the first place, and uh, I responded by saying, well, it's certainly not because of how you look. I mean, you're pretty ugly. Uh, and it's not because of how clever you are. I mean, let's face it, you are pretty stupid. Just for the records, I do not think that. Uh, okay, for, for, for the recording, I do not think that. But I will tell you this, I have developed a love for Helen that goes beyond her beauty and her intelligence, but that's just not how it works in the beginning. You're normally attracted to someone, aren't you, because of some characteristics that draw you to them. Now, that being said, I think it's different if you have children. You don't love your children because of how they look or how clever they are or even how obedient they are. You you love them in spite of all of that, not because they're special or deserving but because they are yours and that's what God says to us. You are my chosen people but you aren't chosen because you're special, you're special because you are chosen. As Peter puts it in chapter 2 verse 10, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. They may not have caught this, but uh, that's a quote from a book in the Old Testament. Anyone know which one? uh, It's Hosea. Again, interesting, no one plump for that one as their favorite book in the Bible. I think it's better to say Hosea had one of the toughest assignments of anyone in the Bible. If you know the story, God told him to go and marry a prostitute to give everyone a pretty graphic picture of God's relationship to his people. So uh, Hosea pretty remarkably obeys God and marries... A prostitute but after just a couple of years she leaves him and returns to a life of prostitution giving her away giving herself away to people left right and center and God tells Hosea to take her back again and what Peter's doing here he's quoting that story to the people of God and telling us that's effectively where we were when God chose us he didn't choose us because of our beauty. It it wasn't because of our moral perfection or our purity. God chose us when we were ugly and deformed and spiritually in prostitution. And just to be clear, we didn't choose him. Our hearts were so bent out of shape, so wicked, so set against God that we would never have chosen him unless he made the first move to woo us and draw us to himself. Now, here's the thing. If it was all dependent on us, then we would never feel completely secure, would we? I mean, every time we mess up, what what if God changed his mind about us? If it was on us and our performance, that isn't the basis for a secure existence, which is why I think it's actually phenomenally good news that it's nothing to do with our performance. You weren't chosen because you were more moral or more intelligent or more beautiful or more deserving. No, from beginning to end, it's all because God set His grace on you. As Peter spells it out in verse 2, it's all because God the Father chose you and God the Spirit made you holy and God the Son cleansed you with His blood, covering all your guilt and your shame and replacing it with His pure righteousness. Listen, in a world that is hostile to us because of our faith, in a world where things are always going to be uncertain and where increasingly we know what it is to be under attack and to lose our rights, we need to remember and never forget our secure standing before God. You know, I think we can have this tendency, can't we, where we believe that God's with us and blessing us when everything's going well, but when it feels like our world is falling apart, we can, in that moment, assume that God has somehow abandoned us. But like with the original recipients of Peter's letters here, knowing we are chosen by God gives us huge comfort. Though the culture rejects us, God welcomes us and loves us, regardless of how bad our circumstances are, because God's chosen us, we belong to Him. And no amount of suffering or pain can separate us from the inheritance that he's prepared for us in the city to come a true home where one day we will no longer be exiles. And so we can stand firm. We can stand firm in the grace of God because the God who chooses us is the God who brings about the very salvation he offers. And we can know absolute assurance that whenever we face suffering and difficulty and persecution and pain, in that moment, it doesn't mean God's forgotten us. I mean, if before the creation of the world, God chose us. And if he then sent his son to die for us, he's hardly going to let us go now, is he? So that's our identity. We are temporary residents and foreigners. We're exiles and we are God's chosen people. Let's move on. How then are we to live in light of all of this? How are we to live in light of this? Well, Peter says that we should have a compelling character that is defined by two things. There are specific things we do and specific things we don't do. First of all, he says in Verse 11 of chapter 2, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Now let's face it, this is easier said than done because every day when we wake up, the world is screaming to us, do what your body wants. Do whatever your emotions tell you. Won't you cultivate them, feed them, express them, and then enshrine them? Which means that as followers of Jesus, we are literally at war with the gospel of our culture, which is increasingly a gospel of self-expression and self-fulfillment. Whereas all the time, Jesus is preaching a gospel of self-denial. And so inside of us, it's like we have this constant voice saying, just be you, just be you, just be you. And Jesus is saying, that is not that great an idea. Don't do it. So how do we resist? How do we fight? How do we overcome the worldly desires that wage war against our souls? But I think it all comes back to who we see ourselves to be. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're a smoker. I'm not making any moral judgment on smoking. I'm just using this as an illustration. Imagine you're a smoker and someone comes up and offers you a cigarette. Now, if you say, sorry, I I, I can't, I'm trying to quit right now. What you're really saying is, I'm a smoker that's who I am, that's my identity, I'm a smoker who's trying not to, which means really at the end of the day, it's down to your willpower, Uh, it's your willpower finding who deep down you believe yourself to be, you're you're a smoker but you're trying to fight against it and you don't need me to tell you, sooner or later you're probably going to end up giving in. If someone comes up to you, and you are not a smoker and they offer you a cigarette, well, what do you say? You say, well, well, thanks for the offer, but actually I'm not a smoker. End of conversation. So if you say, I'm trying to quit, you're basically saying, I want to, but I can't. If you say, I don't, it's because simply that's not what I do. You see, it, it's way more powerful when you start living out of who you are. Now, When you take that principle and you start trying to apply it to all the different contested issues in our culture right now, I think it's a bit of a game changer. Like, instead of saying, I'd really like to do that, but I probably shouldn't because I'm trying to follow Jesus, you can actually say, no, I'm chosen by God. I belong to Him. This isn't my true home. I'm a saint. That's my true identity, and as far as I can tell, uh, that that behavior, that activity is completely out of keeping with who I truly am. Do you understand the difference? Identity shapes behavior way more effectively than mere willpower. And I think that's what Peter's appealing to when he says dear friends I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And then he goes on to say verse 12 be careful then to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors then even if they accuse you of doing wrong they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. You need to understand that if you are serious, deadly serious about following Jesus, then at some point you're going to be accused of doing wrong and people are going to misunderstand what you believe, which means that to survive, at some point you're going to have to break the fear of man in your life. And you're going to have to break the desire to be liked and approved by everyone. Because it's just inevitable that if you get this right, some people are always going to misunderstand and unfairly accuse you. Now look, when that happens, the temptation will always be to either give up and go with the crowd or retreat and hide away. But I think Peter's calling us here to do something way more radical. He's giving us here a vision of living such good lives that people are compelled to respond. Dostoevsky once said that beauty will save the world. I love that quote. And I kind of think, that's what Peter's getting at here. He's saying we're to live such beautiful lives that people go, look, I don't know how you as a follower of Jesus believe what you believe, but I've got to admit, your life is so beautiful. You know, I think that is how we're called to live in a culture that constantly misunderstands and accuses us. So how do we do this? How do we live such beautiful lives that people take notice? Well, before we finish, here are just three quick suggestions gleaned from the example of the church down through history. Number one, in a hardened, aggressive culture, Christians down through the centuries have always showed compassion. Always showed compassion. The early Christians, they were renowned for their care for abandoned children and the elderly, and those who are sick, and it's still the same today. I heard a story recently about a church leader who was so moved by the plight of unwanted children in his city that he encouraged his church to get trained as foster parents, and then sometime later he went to the child services in their city and asked how many children were waiting to be fostered, And when he was told the number, he said, our church will take them all. In one act of compassion, they solved that particular need in their city. Can you imagine what would happen in our city if every church lived with the same intensity of compassion that Jesus modelled? Well, we can't make decisions for other churches, many of whom are actually doing a brilliant job at this already. I mean, just to, to single them out, it's great having Steve here from St John's, just down the road in Harborne, who um, we're kind of going to be kind of foster carers for them here at, at Lordswood over the next uh, year or so. I mean, they do a superb job uh, in and around Harborne; such a brilliant, brilliant uh, reputation. Um, our, our kids went to school in Harborn and uh, just the influence of St. John's over that school uh, and all the different things kind of doing out in the community. I uh, just want to honour them for the brilliant work that they do. And there are so many other churches around the city who are invested in so many ways in this way, but uh, look, w- w- we, we can't govern what other churches do, but we can make that our aim more and more here at Church Central, whether it's our work with CAP or uh, our work with older people, Time for Tea and our connection with Caris, whether it's Hope English Club, whether it's Run for Refugees or simply our own individual acts of compassion, we are called to serve our city. And I simply want to encourage you today to take initiative. Won't you take initiative in this, and wherever you take initiative, what you know will be right behind you every step of the way. So how do we do this? How do we model something that's beautiful in our city? Well, we can follow the example of Christians down through the centuries and show compassion. Secondly, we contribute culturally to the flourishing of society. You know, there are so many scientific breakthroughs down through history that are down to Christians like Galileo and Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal and more recently Francis Collins, all of whom believe that God created a discoverable and ordered universe. Christians have also had an incredibly high view of the arts and have put so much beautiful creativity into the world, whether it's Bach or Handel or George Herbert or Chance the Rapper. And even when society has resisted what those people believe, they can't help seeing what they've produced and are left saying, look, we hate their beliefs, but we can't deny how good their work is. Let's give ourselves culturally the flourishing of society whether you're a scientist or an artist or contribute in some other way and again we have so many people in the room already invested in this keep going keep going in contributing culturally to the flourishing of society and thirdly they functioned as a conscience in society they haven't just shown compassion they've spoken truth to power for example back in the 19th century uh, we know this stuff, we know how Christians, they were at the very forefront, weren't they, of social reform here in the UK, with the likes of Wilberforce championing the abolition of the slave trade, Shaftesbury pioneering the reform of working conditions. The question is, where are those people today? Where are they? I don't know, perhaps God's prompting some of you to step up. It's not just serve those in need but increasingly to be a voice for them listen if you feel something stirring in you even now as i'm speaking won't you seriously begin asking god to show you what this m- might look like for you because here's the principle a compelling life leads to a compelling response. It's as simple as that. I mean, isn't that what Peter says in verse 12? That they they will see your honourable behaviour and they will give honour to God when he judges the world. So let me close by spelling out just two very clear implications, I think, of this whole message for your life. First of all, if we read these verses as we try and understand them, are we going to see the war that's raging? For your soul. The challenge of the world we live in right now is pretty much everything the Bible says is wrong, the world says is your right. Which means increasingly it's very hard for us to take sin seriously. But Peter says that this stuff is at war to destroy you. Really, this is a matter of life and death. So I want to appeal to you this morning if your life doesn't look any different to the people around you, If you're not really living as a foreigner here, a a citizen of heaven with a completely different set of values, if you're tolerating sin in your heart and you're kind of justifying it or resigned to never changing, I urge you, go to war against the sin in your life. Because if you don't or sabotage your relationships, your work, your confidence before God, your witness in the world, it won't lead to anything good. So if there's secret sin in your life, bring it to God, confess it to others, repent of it, deal with it ruthlessly, get help wherever you need it. If you've tolerated something and you know it's wrong and the Holy Spirit is convicting you, I'm standing here and I'm calling you to put it to death today before it destroys you. So something to deal with, And then maybe on a slightly more positive note, secondly, I want to consider this question. What has God called you to contribute? What's he called you to contribute? I think we're often blind to this, but our culture has a way of numbing us into mediocrity. My appeal to you would be where God has given you gifts, where you know that God has put something in you that needs to be expressed. Won't you give yourself to contributing to the flourishing of the wider community? Because you know what? This city is aching for people with an alternative vision, a better vision to push it out of its brokenness and towards healing and redemption. That's probably why God's placed you here. So don't be passive. Don't be shy. Don't be reluctant. Don't be lazy. Don't leave it to others. Why don't you resolve today to pursue whatever it is that God's given you to do? And just to say, the goal in all of this isn't making a name for ourselves. It's not seizing power. The goal is simply being a potent witness. I can't help but imagine what would happen here in this city if followers of Jesus genuinely lived a vision of holiness, and contribution out of their identity as exiles who are chosen by God. But even though this city doesn't understand us, and perhaps never will, they still thank God that we're here.